Hello, you're listening to 87.7 Bellwig FM. The time is 2pm. I'm Theo Hunt and this is Newspeak, the best and only politics discussion show on campus sounds. Newspeak is freedom of speech going live as we discuss the big issues in the world around us with sincerity and honesty. This week we'll be taking a deep dive into some existential questions about Britain, British politics and how we see ourselves as a people. Leading us on this tour are two wonderful guests. Firstly, Senior Politics Lecturer here at Lancaster University, Dr Mark Garnett. Great to have you with us, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good, Theo. Nice to see you in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. It's been a, a long year of, of, of Teams calls and, and, and video chats, so this is a real treat. Um, certainly for me, I hope it is for, for you as well. Um, and we also have Students' Union President Oliver Robinson with us as well. Oliver, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you, Theo. It's an absolute pleasure to be Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, always, ni- always nice to feel valued. Um, uh, and dear listeners, we will be discussing things you will certainly have opinions on, so please do get involved. Send your questions to us, send your thoughts to us, either to the studio phone or to me personally. If you have any tricky questions for our guests here, please do send them in. They're very capable. Uh, the studio number is, if you're ready, 01524 01524-566-549. Nine. But on to business. In the UK, we don't really have a State of the Union address, where a national leader revels in the triumph of the past year and looks to the year ahead. But we could really do with one, not for the past year, but for the past 70. Next year, Queen Elizabeth II will celebrate 70 years on the throne, all of them presumably to the disappointment of the Prince of Wales. There will be a four-day weekend, some fly-pass, and a lot of hand-wringing in the Guardian and Telegraph about how the country's been going to pot or booming or bad, worse, better since the good old days. So it seemed apt to investigate for ourselves. What has this Elizabethan age been for Britain and what comes next? Britain has been undergoing an identity crisis for rather a long time, perhaps since the 1200s when some barons decided King John was ripe for an extortion attempt. But this crisis shows no sign of easing up as we head towards 2022. Hopefully Mark, Oliver and I can put these questions to bed once and for all and settle the final debate. But, guys, the opening question... What has been the defining trait of the Elizabethan age for Britain? I'm going to go to Oliver first. So what has been the defining trait of the Elizabethan age for Britain? Well, that's an interesting question. Thank you, Theo. Um, The Elizabethan age has been very, very challenging for Britain. Um, We've simultaneously enjoyed a moderately prosperous uh, economy for almost the entirety of this period, um, with a few hiccups here and there. Um, but equally, our relative strength in in the world has been declining. So it's, I think, the two things of Britain is generally improving, becoming a better place to live, whilst our relative power in the world, our relative influence, especially relative to um, the colonies in America, has been uh, declining pretty rapidly. When Queen Elizabeth uh, was on the throne, Britain had a claim to arguably be one of the most powerful nations in the world, and whilst that still holds, it doesn't hold in quite the same way. And even in the last decade, I think we're seeing a, a, a reckoning uh, mm. come come for our country, uh, which is, you know, something that I think we are struggling with even more uh, than perhaps the uh, barons extorting uh, King John. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, Mark, your thoughts on that? And if I could just remind you both to go quiet, or bring your mics further uh, near to you, they should be on hinges, so you can move like that. But Mark, your, your thoughts, what's been the defining trait of this Elizabethan age? 
Well, I took the liberty of bringing with me a book which I'd forgotten I had, uh, a book called The New Elizabethans, which was published in 1977, so it was the Silver Jubilee of uh, the second Elizabeth. And the author uh, finishes his prologue, a fairly dismal prologue about how uh, it had not been the most glorious 25 years in Britain's uh, history. But he said, well, if anyone was writing about the first 25 years of the first Elizabeth, they didn't go terribly well. <laughs> and it was only the last 20 years of the first Elizabeth, Elizabethan era that fame, glory and prosperity came to the British Isles. And that seems to be a kind of a implicit prophecy that uh, the second Elizabeth would have another 20 years to add to the... And that prophecy has gone very sadly awry because it's, what, uh, uh, another 45 years <laughs> that she has enjoyed. Um, but... When I saw that you were interested in this particular question, uh, one thing that's changed over the last century is that uh, instead of eras being identified with monarchs, they're now identified with trends or sometimes mm -hmm. even, dare I say, politicians who aren't monarchs. Um, and so if we're looking at um, you know, what we had at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, was the fag end of the Victorian era. Obviously, Queen Victoria had been around for a very long time, so she deserved to have an era to herself. Mm. But then uh, there was the Edwardian era because her, her successor was Edward, and there hadn't been an Edwardian era. The problem is that then we had a couple of Georges interspersed with um, Edward VIII, and there already had been a Georgian era. Mm. So we never got a second George. That era didn't have a name. It's, it's the, it's in, the interwar years interwar, and the, yeah. or, or whatever. Well, I think, um, you know, it, it, although people like the author of this particular book thought that it was quite eye-catching to talk about a new Elizabethan era. I think that really what we've had uh, since Queen Elizabeth, the present one, came to the throne is really a succession of eras, none of which really are defined by her. So you could say the 1950s is an era where many people look back upon it, whether they were alive or not, uh, as a, an era of consensus and, and you might say yeah. small c conservatism. Uh, you could say the 1960s was a decade of hedonism for a few and um, uh, you know, a bit of a, a sense of um, a, a, a kind of a, um, awareness of Britain's decline in the 60s. So, so, so 60s is a kind of a, a troubled mm. decade. 70s, decade of inflation and strikes. The 80s, the decade of uh, Thatcher. Everything up to Brexit, the era of post-Thatcher, and now the era of Peppa Pig. <laughs> um, didn't, didn't see Peppa Pig era coming. I think that caught most commentators by surprise. Um, so, so we're talking about how, rather than having a single monarch, you're able to break things down into decades now. Is, yeah. that, is that a recent phenomenon? I mean, you mentioned the Edwardian era. Of course, the only legacy of the Edwardian era is the dress sense of Jacob Rees-Mogg. And <laughs> you, you, you kind of wonder if, like... Is, is it a new thing to, to classify decades as opposed to large stretches of history or in, in, in you know, the good time of a century or so where we look back on all this as one homogenous period? O Oliver? I, hmm. Actually, I don't know, is the honest answer here. Um, is the categorisation of time into decades maybe a product of these things being relatively close in the past um, and will be in the, you know in a hundred years, will we start to clump them back together again? I, I, I think we probably will. Um, so I, I'm not sure that the question will hold in 
even a century's time. I yeah. think we'll begin to sort of see the broader trends that were going on uh, in the economy, in the society that we that we live in, in the world that we live in. Uh, and I think they'll be you know, defined by particular movements. Uh, I have a tendency to you know, think of things in terms of how the economy is how, how economies are developing mm. um, and particularly the shape of the economies and how that has an impact on um, the rest of society but you know the two things don't always line up very neatly uh, the liberalization uh, of the 60s was you know also a time where Britain's economy was one of the most you know, heavily nationalized yeah. in British history um, so you know th th these things don't always make up but I think yeah, periodization, an interesting intellectual topic. Uh, I think we'll we'll see some consolidation of the decades uh, as, okay. we, as we go forward. Uh, uh, and so, Mark, you said it's all kind of gone awry. Um, it, and Oliver, you mentioned Britain's kind of relative post-war decline in status. So to flip the question a bit, I mean, has anything gone well for Britain in the, in the past 70 years? Has, has it all been kind of on a trend towards post-apocalypse? Or what, what has actually been surprising or, or, or positive for, for, for our country? Mark, you, you look like you have something to... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, following on from what Oliver was saying, I just don't think now, because the monarch is um, a ceremonial figure, I really don't think it's appropriate anymore to talk about uh, eras... Mm. Um, in relation to a monarch, the Britain that um, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, ascended the throne of in 1952 is unrecognisable from that of today, so it'd be difficult to find consistent uh, themes. But yes, I, mean, I think Oliver was hinting before, we've had, uh, clearly we've had a change in attitudes to certain extremely sensitive and uh, difficult questions. We've had... Um, uh, at, at least we've had um, a proper debate about some things which in 1952 were simply taboo. Mm. Um, and, and that has got to be seen as a good thing. Uh, material prosperity, well, you will often hear uh, people who were alive in 1952. Uh, this, of course, is just about the end of the era of rationing in mm. 1952. Mm. Um, and I've just, in fact, been looking at the BBC online sort of discussion forum where they're talking about the possibility of shortages of certain foods over Christmas, and quite a few contributors have said, well, you know, we've got too much choice, we've got too much prosperity, it'd be much better to have a return almost to the 50s, where, you know, um, if you could get a turf from somewhere and uh, some potatoes for Christmas, yeah. then that's all you needed, and um, like, anything... Like, like an Aldi shop, where there's only one choice for anything and it all costs 75p. Is, yeah, I, uh, I, I did see something interesting... Um, God knows where I saw it. Uh, basically talking about the um, psychology of consumer choice uh, and how actually by presenting fewer options, uh, consumers are more likely to buy rather than less. Right. Uh, and if you present, you know, a dozen jams, the consumer's more likely to just go, oh God, that's a lot of jam. And, <laughs> and decide on nothing rather than, do you want strawberry, raspberry or gooseberry? Um, yeah. That tends to produce a, a very, very different, different response. Yeah, I've found working in student societies, stuff tends to happen when you give them exactly two choices or no choices and you say, this is what we're doing. When you give students too many choices, they panic and nothing happens. Um, yeah, and, uh, which goes to something which some people on uh, some parts of the political spectrum will see as a great advantage. And again, Oliver touched on it in the 60s, nationalisation was kind of the dominant um, 
force, you might say, in British industry when you consider uh, the various concerns which at that time were in under state ownership. Well, um, for, for example, uh, the breakup of British gas, as it was, um, has led to a plethora of choices and a, a great deal of mm. difficulty. Um, and people always say about the telecom revolution that in the old days you could only ever get one kind of telephone and uh, you know you, you could have any colour of telephone you liked as long as it was black or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. But again, um, you know, uh, I just inject the, the thought that um, maybe one of the things that's wrong with this country and other Western uh, uh, societies is uh, a profusion of choice without really feeling that the consumer has got power. The consumer's got choice without power, which I think is actually quite a um, angst-ridden state to be in. Mm. Does it does it betray though that the, the kind of economic innovation that's come about in this country? I mean, one of the things Britain has historically done very well is is to innovate and to bring about new designs, new products, um, shipbuilding in Isambarking and Brunel, the internet and Tim Berners-Lee. This idea of innovating, even if we don't apply successfully, as was British car manufacturing in the 70s and 80s, all going bust. There's the uh, British and perhaps American as well, sense of innovation and progress and entrepreneurial spirit. Is that something that's, that's, that's been allowed to flourish uh, post-war and, and given people choices in production um, rather than just consumption? I mean, I think it's more of a sim symptom of globalisation than, um, than, than Britain's natural entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I think the fact, but in fact, you can point to a fairly specific date, which is the invention of the container, um, mm. the, that universal transport mechanism that now is, um, well, from ships like the Evergreen uh, that block up the Suez Canal to uh, trains, uh, self-contained goods can go in a container in one form from uh, the warehouse to warehouse to factory uh, to transport to warehouse again, uh, all without leaving anything, and it means that we can suddenly uh, transport goods and services, well, goods around the world, uh, far far quicker than we than we ever could. Yeah. Um, and it means that manufacturing is, yes, a more complex process. Bits of are done everywhere, but for coming to the consumer, I don't think it has the slightest bit to do with Britain being uh, uniquely wonderful. I think. It is a, yeah, a symptom mm. of Western consumerism that we demand uh, a great deal of choice. Which I think actually Mark is completely right when he talks about the choice without power. Um, the, the consumer ability to do various things, um, to have influence, to consume. Um, we talk about um, being a good consumer uh, and doing it um, according to ecological um, or other such moral uh, concerns. But I think as long as um, the fundamental survival mechanisms for companies remain the same, which is, do you turn a profit, yes or no? Uh, if no, then go bust. If yes, then expand. Mm. Uh, as long as that basic rubric remains in place, I don't see consumers having that all that much power. Okay, okay. To, I mean, talking about consumers, talking about British citizens, I think... There's an interesting question to be asked, and we are going to uh, go from question one to question three here, but we will visit core identity in, in a bit. Well, I mean, what is Britain's default political nature? Who are we as, as Britons? Are we conservative? Are we kind of liberal in a more modern sense? Are we radical left? Are we nationalist right? Where, where do we 
tend to say. I mean, Tony Blair would have us believe we're all Middle England voting, you know, semi-conservatives. Is uh, yeah, w- what do we believe as a people, Mark? I, I imagine you have some thoughts on this. Uh, well, a few. I mean, it's difficult. You could say that the key thing is volatility, very changeable, and uh, uh, and again, I think that reflects an uncertainty about Britain's role in the world. I think if there was a secure role for Britain in the world. Uh, there would be more reason to talk about a secure political identity. I think we kind of oscillate between libertarianism and authoritarianism. Uh, and you can see this happening again in the controversies of today. So that the migrant crisis is bringing out authoritarian instincts. The um, uh, coronavirus pandemic is bringing out a libertarian streak. Mm. Uh, but I think this again... Um, you were talking before about the British innovation, the culture of innovation. Well, one could, I think, without being unduly uh, sort of um, unpatriotic, point out that Britain's great innovations came at a time when we already had a manufacturing lead for all kinds of reasons, uh, availability of raw materials, all that kind of thing. So it was almost as if the, the opportunities for innovation were there, and the British people, certain very eminent British people, seize those opportunities. Well, now you would say that that situation has gone, and so British people will include a great number of brilliant, innovative individuals, but so will China, so will India, mm. so will Brazil, so even, dare I say it, will America, so certainly will uh, Germany. Um, and so, you know, for, from that point of view... I think it's almost as if in Western democracies, identity is so keenly fought over precisely because it's being blurred. And in particular, things Oliver's talking about, consumerism is an identity, a sort of meta-identity. Where, and, and the people, the populists around Europe and elsewhere in the United States, I think a lot of this is almost a search for an authentic identity because it's all being uh, pervaded by just a a kind of almost identikit consumerist uh, ethos. So in terms of the question about, um, uh, you know, if you're talking about attitudes or party allegiances, party allegiances are completely, as we know, volatile. Uh, So we have the Red Wall Conservatives who may, in fact, in the House of Commons now behaving more and more as if they're moderate members of the Labour Party. so, and I think it would be difficult to say that we are conservative with a small c. We're far too uh, angst. I mean, you know, conservatism with a small c is the idea that there is plenty to be enjoyed in our current surroundings. So we are happy with the circumstances around us. I really don't think, if you look at the spectrum of people, uh, the various grievances people have, the one thing that isn't representative is small c okay. conservatism. Okay. Uh, Oliver, how do you respond to that? I think there's a great deal of that we can see eye to eye on, but I think actually to touch on your question too, um, that you've got us to prepare for just very briefly before I go into the political nature. Of course, yes. And I think Britons are sort of in some ways defined by an intense sense of pride and cynicism. Um, (laughs) So we're very, very proud of our country, we like it a lot, but we're also very, very cynical about its ability to actually give us anything. It, it makes supporting it the English football team quite tricky. Yes, yes it, it does. Um, but I think actually most people in Britain are at least moderately nationalistic. Um, if we're going to apply sort of broad brush, uh, I don't think people are as afraid of 
of the state, as, as Mark perhaps suggests. I think particularly at the moment, um, when there are perceived to be a, lots of, a lot of threats in the world, I think people look to the state um, in order to help protect them from perceived threats and real threats, um, and to give them a, give them a support. Um, the NHS remains... Um, yes, sorry, we've already mentioned that. Um, so, so soon on uh, in this uh, uh, in this broadcast, but uh, the NHS remains um, almost this religious institution um, for 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 Britons as much as it is a, a healthcare providing mechanism. Mm. Um, I think we have a broad tendency towards the status quo. Um, I think there is a discomfort with change sometimes. But change does have to happen, and I think it un- ha- often happens in quite stuttering ways, often yeah. quite uncomfortably, um, I, I, with a lot of noise along the way. Mm. Uh, Mark, I mean, is, is there anything there that you, to, to, to respond to? Well, no, I mean, I, well, I agree. Uh, um, one thing I remember from the um, late 1970s when Sir Keith Joseph, Margaret Thatcher's kind of ideological guru, uh, was making a series of speeches... Uh, about what was wrong with Britain. And he was saying the main thing that was wrong with Britain was whenever a problem arises, there's a cry of the government must do something about it. Mm. And he thought that the main objective of Thatcherism was to stop people saying the government should do something about it and instead say, what can we as citizens do about it? Well, I would say that, if anything, that tendency has actually increased since uh, Keith Joseph's day. The idea that the... And it was Oliver saying that there's there's a kind of a resentment and dependence upon the state at exactly the same time, and that's what I was saying. Where there's a libertarian streak, but also an authoritarian mm. streak, which just sums up a nation which doesn't know what it is, who its people are, um, and uh, really is, I think, uh, altogether hampered by an inability to really understand what has happened to the country since, well, since the Second World War, but also since uh, the Queen came to the throne. The Queen is a kind of a symbol of a continuity where every, everywhere else you look in society, there are all the traces of continuity being erased. The Queen stands alone. Mm. Uh, and the NHS, as Oliver was saying, again, you can see the the odd mixture of attitudes because people were clapping for the NHS However, whenever there's a negative story about GPs, people are very, very happy to join in trying to make life impossible for hard-working GPs. So the institution of the NHS can um, receive a certain amount of, um, uh, of acclaim as if it's a national treasure, but individual parts of the NHS, we've got record numbers, obviously, on waiting lists. We've got people waiting in um, accident and emergency on trolleys for hours and hours. Um, so there's a discrepancy between the affection for the NHS and the actual, um, you might say, the performance of the NHS, but in particular, the funding of the NHS. Uh, I mean, one, one well, in fact, that, that, that was discussion invites two questions, really. And, Oliver, I'm going to invite you to, to answer the first of them, certainly. Uh, in fact, no, what... what I mean, how does this kind of mix of nationalism, marked libertarianism, pride and cynicism, how is that different to another country? I mean, you could, 
insert France into the sentence and actually the, it, it was still barely true. You can search Germany or America or even China and say, well, they're quite proud of their country and they're very cynical of its direction. Maybe not actually not so much in China, but these things hold true for a lot of countries and a lot of national psyches. So what, what is uniquely British about those things? Well, I think you've actually touched on a very good point. There is a lot of things that, about our national identity that isn't really very unique to Britain at all in any way, shape or form. But actually, let's... Something I do think of, actually, just going back briefly, is the way that we sell things to ourselves. In America, the free market is sold, this wonderful liberator uh, that will bring all things to all people if you will just work for it. In <laughs> this country... I always feel like there's a sort of resentment of it, that it's a necessary evil. Um, you know, yes, it would be great to have all this, that and the other, but ultimately that's not how the economy works. So there's a sort of cynicism there that I think... I, I think it is the cynicism and probably the anxiety as well, as Mark is touching on, that are probably defining features. They're not unique, but I think they're certainly very, very important in explaining why Britons behave as they do. Sometimes... <laughs> Uh, trying on political identities like you might try on a raincoat, um, <laughs> other times refusing to change regardless of the facts that are in front of them. Um, again, uh, I am speaking in platitudes again. This could probably apply to a, a great many countries and a great many people within these countries and around the world. Mm, mm. Uh, uh, Mark, what, what do you think about that? Uh, well, if we're talking about what makes Britain different, I would say if you, the countries that you mentioned, um, uh, in particular France... Uh, France had its decolonization in a, a real national trauma in the 1950s and uh, there was a clear strategy after that that France would be independent of the United States as far as it possibly could be but would be a leading figure within the burgeoning European cooperation well if you compare that to Britain you can see we had a, a kind of decolonization which was rationalised as a humanitarian exercise, whereas of course it was just let's get out because we can't afford the empire hmm. uh, anymore and as a result of the lack of trauma almost there was no feeling that Britain could ha chart an alternative course that it already had a great friend in America and that was um, a great source of prestige in the world that we didn't need to worry because America was basically Britain with a different accent. People, <laughs> people seemed to convince themselves. But also that we didn't need Europe. Hmm. And so our, you could say that the, uh, America probably is now going through an accelerated version of our sense of muddled identity because it's fallen from being an unchallenged superpower to being very much under challenge economically and militarily or whatever in a, in a blinky of an eye and that's where you get the success of populism in Trump you get people uh, thrashing around for an answer to something which has happened without them really realising what was going on well in Britain in a way it's a kind of a more protracted version of the same process because people have never been told what was going on there are still people who say we single handedly won the second world war there is you know, there's been a really successful attempt on the part, not so much of the establishment, which is always much more liberal-minded than the media, etc., mm. but in, in particular the media, but also of leading politicians to disguise the extent of Britain's changed role in the world. And it's that the success of that operation is the reason why it's um, th things affect us more, um, I think, more traumatically than certainly our European neighbours, 
And as I say, it's now America is almost undergoing a similar process um, of falling from the top of the world league table to somewhere where they are clearly uh, uh, leading but not dominant anymore. Mm. This always causes a great deal of national soul searching. Uh, I, I, I wonder. I mean, there, there's certainly some truth in that. But I wonder what um, there's also, I suppose, an assumption that before Britain, before the end of the Second World War, before American assistance and the end of empire, there's an assumption that British identity was secure. And I mean, we know from, for instance, before the First World War, the naval race with Germany, there's a high degree of naval insecurity there. And say, from Sangera in his book Empire Land recounts that actually all throughout British imperial history, there's been domestic debate over slavery, over the extent of imperialism, over um, you know the, the allowing of in explorers out in Africa to just claim land for Britain, the rightness of doing so and imposing British values on native tribes. So how, how true is it, Mark, to say that before the end of empire there was a sense of security and settlement, or is it actually just part of a British story to, to, to never really be settled? No, I th- well, I think what you're describing is kind of the intelligentsia having debates about these issues. I think the average person had intense pride in the empire, saw it as a kind of an inevitability, saw it as validation of British national identity, that the empire was a natural development because Britons were superior to everyone else. And there's obviously a racial element to this, but also a cultural one. It wasn't just um, ethnicity, it was also kind of nationality, that Britons were just better. Uh, And and this all goes back to the Spanish Armada and the first Elizabeth kind of thing. uh, and and so uh, you know the the um, uh, uh, that there was for most people a sense of having uh, a great deal of validity as individuals on the basis that they were Britons, mm-hmm. and so there, and there was also as we know a very homogeneous society, and so there was an easy way of identifying the people who were British, mm-hmm. uh, where of course all of that even. Uh, not so much at the national level, but also at the level of class now. All these divisions have blurred and died away at the same time that the idea of what a Britain means, what a Britain is, has been uh, eroded, undermined, transformed by, as I say, developments which have happened without the public really understanding uh, why they can't feel so much, yeah. um, so, so, so much secure pride in their country that it's almost an angry pride in their country. It's more, basically, we've gone from patriotism to nationalism. Okay, Uh, Oliver, do you agree with that assessment of the average person in in, uh, understanding Britain's place in the world? Almost entirely, Um, actually. uh, Sorry, Uh, Felix. I know we're meant to be trying to provide you some balance. Um, I think, actually, it's interesting to contrast um, the American example and the British example. Um, Britain has seen a steady and slow, often stumbling decline. There have been particular points of um, uh, where it's become very, very apparent very quickly uh, to the British public that Britain is undergoing this gradual decline. Um, However, for the most part, they remain mostly unaware of it (laughs) until it suddenly throws something up in their face and like, oh, oh dear, what's happened here? Yeah. In America, they've gone from, you know, hero to zero in the space of not my lifetime, but my nephew's lifetime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is an extraordinary turnabout. And I think we see in 
American nationalism, the same thing that we see in British nationalism, which is a chest-thumping, aren't we great, damn the rest of them, um, I, I love my country, regardless of, you know, all of the bad things it has or hasn't done, um, this is a great place to be because it's a great place to be. Hmm. There is no, there's no way to rationalise it, it's just a a feeling and it's nothing more and uh, there is you know no no way to say that britain is the greatest country in the world just as there's no way to say that america is the greatest country in the world but people still believe it and mm. um, mm. i think that we have seen yes a diffusion destruction of various identities but i think not perhaps in the way that we think i think class still plays a huge role in British society. Um, actually, that's something that one of my uh, international friends commented on. Like, you guys are obsessed with this, they, they said to me. Um, which, you know, being British, it was like, well, we don't really think about class that much. But actually, there was the impression from, from the outside that we do. Mm, mm. And, and that's inter- talking about the American example as well. They didn't just go from hero to zero. I mean... It was nine eleven intensity of of, of of bastion of freedom of a of a target of terror um, heights of, of heroic self understanding, but of course within that height lay the seeds of that absolute collapse twenty years later in inviting global resistance and inviting kind of forces of domestic institutions Department of Homeland Security uh, that created that a lot of that domestic kind of um, uncertainty. But that is a tangent for for another day. And, and I think both this discussion moving very much onto what should, and we skipped this question earlier, and I think it's worth coming back to now, what should our core identity be as a country? What would it look like if Britain was secure in its identity, perhaps like France, as, as Mark suggested, a clear idea of where we stand within the world, how we relate to America, how we relate to the EU, how we relate to North Africa, particularly with conflicts in the Sahel at the moment. What, what would it look like, Mark, to, to, to be secure in the world, to have a core identity? Yeah, well, if you're talking about the national, the way the nation projects itself and acts on the international stage, if you're talking about that kind of identity, then the acceptance of the status of a significant middle-ranking power almost provides the full answer to the question, that once you've accepted that, then certain courses of action are almost ruled out by definition, that you can still be a force for good in international affairs, but you are not trying to assert any kind of, um, uh, of, of national power because, quite simply, your power is more about your moral purpose or whatever than about your, uh, your military. And, and so also one thing that definitely goes along with accepting being a middle-ranking power is, the, is membership of international organisations because you realise that as a middle-ranking power, you can no longer lay down the law to anyone else, so you have to work alongside uh, other nations and as part of other organisations. And this is the thing, that Britain has always been half-hearted in its membership of any of these clubs, even the UN, you might say, uh, because it feels that it's different from other countries Mm. and doesn't have to cooperate on a lasting basis. A middle-ranking power, if it really wants to... Uh, achieve its objectives, which are by definition more limited because it's a middle-ranking power, if you set your sights lower, 
then, as I say, the course of action becomes almost um, self-explanatory. Uh, and, and you basically strip away all the delusions of grandeur and you stop talking about World War II. Mm, I, I mean, that kind of understanding of how we project ourselves, um, Oliver, would you, what would you have to add to that? I think actually Mark's final point is one of the most salient ones. We're a country that fundamentally has not moved on from World War II, which is probably the last time Britain was, you know, a enormous player in the way that some people seem to think it still is. Um, I think that if we are to be secure in, identity, in our identity, I think there is a, a space for Britain in the world to be a very, very rational, very, very sensible um, moral force in the world. We're still a very prosperous country. We still have incredible trade links in the world, in spite of our recent attempts to um, sever them. And um, we still hold great diplomatic weight in spite of the previous decade, actually, of um, foreign policy mistakes. Um, I think that a, a rational analysis of where we stand will lead to a rational actor in the world, but at the moment a rational analysis of where we stand is practically impossible because we are so anxiety-ridden, we are so deeply aggrieved of our situation in the world that we take it upon ourselves to inflict great damage um, upon upon our nation. And I think it's uh, sorry to interrupt there, Oliver, no, but no, I think it, it really just epitomises our current predicament that we have somebody who has exhibited not the slightest aptitude for administration or um, good sound decision making, but has cemented his position within a great political party simply by his ability to say things that make British people forget that we are a middle-ranking power. Mm. Um, and so, you know, instead of in, a, in a, um, a rational world where people like John Stuart Mill would feel at ease, um, you would have people who are rewarded with popular support because they take a rational, sober-minded view of Britain's role in the world and therefore give every indication that they're going to be competent in governing the country's affairs. Well, we have the complete reverse. We have people being rewarded for being delusional. Um, and to the, and, and the, the, the interesting thing, difference between Margaret Thatcher and the current Prime Minister is Mrs Thatcher, you might say, believed her own propaganda. She actually... Um, did think that Britain could be restored to international greatness, whatever. Uh, whereas the current Prime Minister is, is pretty evident, is totally cynical about it and only says it to win support. Now that, as I say, the fact that the nation has responded at all positively to this is, I think, the biggest indictment of the nation's current chances of recovering any kind of uh, uh, understanding of its true role in the world. I, I mean, suppose, go on, Oliver. I mean, yeah, three things there. Um, Boris Johnson, I think, reveals both the incredible cynicism that British people have. You talk to most British people, and like, oh yeah, he's a clown. Um, <laughs> they still went out and voted for him because he still makes a lot of people feel that feeling that it's great to be British. Mm. Um, and I think that you know we perhaps don't like to see in our politicians 
people that are too apologetic for Britain mm. shouldn't apologise yeah. for being uh, this wonderful place to live and grow up and so on. Um, and aren't we great? And we should be reshaping the world in our in mm. our image. But I think you know it is that. Actually, you speak to most people, they understand that he's a clown. You speak to most people outside of um, the United Kingdom, they think he's ridiculous. I think he actually epitomises how Britain looks on the international stage. But actually, how Britain has looked, I think, since David Cameron um, started <laughs> jumping to the tune of the, of the hard right of his party, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that is when this all started mm-hmm. to go, certainly in, in recent foreign policy terms, quite horribly wrong. As we sort of embrace the, uh, the this new nationalism, and um, I think Cameron has a lot to answer for. Um, actually, I think our recent problems with Europe are mostly his fault, um, and actually Boris Johnson is the product of Cameron mm-hmm. in 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 many different ways. Yeah, I think you know Boris Johnson. I think um, what you say is right. It's if you are proud of your country, it should matter to you quite a lot what other countries think mm-hmm. of you. And certainly the coverage in most um, uh, objective media outlets, uh, coverage of Britain, is kind of a mixture of puzzlement and, well, incredulity, really. Yeah. Because here we have a country which obviously the, the Brexit issue is different, uh, but arising from that threats to break international law is completely at odds with the chances of Britain having international uh, respect. But then on top of these threats and uh, pugilistic attitudes, you have somebody who almost makes it um, a a merit to, quote, Kermit the Frog or whatever, in speeches at vital uh, meetings of international world leaders. This is people who think that um, somehow this Prime Minister is making Britain look good, are actually talking about how he makes them feel themselves. He, they have no idea what... For, they probably think that foreigners, foreign observers, intelligent foreign observers, are laughing along uh, with Kermit the Frog and all that sort of thing. It's exactly what we've gone into is this... You know, the, uh, the Edmund Burke, the Irish-British um, uh, philosopher, wrote that in order to love what, one's country, the country has to be lovely. And we have gone from that, which is kind of patriotism, rather sickly, sick, sentimental patriotism, to now everyone hates us, but we don't care. <laughs> it's the Millwall chant. Um, I, I just want to suggest a different angle of seeing Boris Johnson, which is there's not really a Johnsonianism emerging from Downing Street, but there's a couple of interesting points which seem to indicate actually a different way of viewing Britain, and <clears throat> in particular two things. Firstly, a focus on kind of championing science and green energy and medium-level firms, which Britain has lacked, it has uh, very effective natural sciences, but lacks medium-level firms and the ability to nurture unicorns, uh, which are firms that go on to become valued more than $1 billion to term, and the government is now focusing, focusing on supporting those firms. And secondly, on levelling up, which, effective or not, suggests that actually this is a government that's focused on its internal rifts uh, and understands that the way forward politically is to restore regional parity uh, and create domestic uh, scientific innovation um, rather than, and, and in cutting the age budget as well, so rather than less fussed on creating a sense of identity by looking afield. So perhaps the very uh, objective of ridicule from foreign observers is conducive to a different way of understanding ourselves of actually... 
is it a, is it not a reasonable way to make an identity by focusing on domestic growth, domestic change, and then we can turn to the outside world and say, okay, now we care about what you think. I, I don't know. Is there, is there any merit in that? Oliver, you, mean, you look very depressed at that film. In the hands of a competent administrator, yeah. I think all of that would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, in the hands of a government that doesn't really seem to understand what it's doing. We are, you know, two years into this govern government now, and it uh, doesn't seem to have done, well, anything, really. Uh, it's got Brexit done, to be fair, but that was actually before the government... It? Uh, no, it hasn't. <laughs> no, it hasn't. <laughs> it hasn't got Brexit done. It, it's oven-ready Brexit still in the oven. And, um, and burnt to a light crisp. Yeah. yeah, and, I mean, we try not to think about it. I certainly do. Um, but, yeah, I think in the hands of a competent administrator, the government's programme could be um, something worth looking at. But I think whilst the Conservatives are at war with themselves over what to do, I think it's basically irrelevant. I think this government is too afraid of government as a as a source for change uh, to actually embrace it. We have hardcore Thatcherites uh, at the top of government who have overnight apparently embraced um, an, an almost neo-Keynesian mm -hmm. outlook on the economy. But they don't seem to want to quite commit to it yet. And instead, all they've really done is inflict uh, tax rises on the poorest. Uh, which is going down swimmingly with absolutely everyone. Yeah, if you look at the range of decisions, amidst Peppa Pig and all the rest of the stupidities, we've had key decisions in any number of fields which back up what Oliver uh, has said. Virtually everywhere you look, rail, um, health, taxation in particular, uh, the um, unprogressive measures that have been taken in recent times, all these things just prove what we knew in the first place, that these things, it's... Uh, superficial sloganising in order to win uh, electoral support on the short. And again, this is another thing about Britain, really. Short-termism is everywhere, and it's partly, you know, media deadlines and whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I agree, though, with, I think, the gist of your point, that certainly the kind of green revolution thing would be an admirable, perfect way to kind of... Uh, uh, to, to add an economic element to a new vision of Britain's role in the world. Mm -hmm. That basically, if you are um, putting resources into that kind of technology, then you're showing responsibility as a power which no longer wants to project its military uh, might, but wants to be a significant player by almost leading the world in what obviously yeah. is going to be the, the next technological revolution or whatever. The trouble is, Oliver's saying that this party is packed to the rafters with Thatcherites who think the state should do nothing. Again, going back to the 1980s, uh, there was, um, somebody asked the aforementioned Sir Keith Joseph, the industry secretary, uh, whether we could uh, have a discussion of the government's industrial strategy, the government's industrial plan. And he said proudly, we don't have one. Uh, yeah, because they think the free market will yeah. solve everything. So we've got not only the wrong ideological administration for a task like that, the Conservative Party, which is a Thatcherite party, is not the party which should be in charge of anything which involves investment in industry. You couldn't trust it to do that. But also, we've got incompetent Thatcherites. Mm. So you've got the wrong, you've you've got the wrong football club or whatever, which is currently fielding 
I don't know, it's um, it, 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 not just its reserve team, but it's kind of a, it, it's a under 11 team. Mm. Um, it's, it's almost like a Saudi investment fund taking over a storied northeastern football club. I mean, is that a similar comparison, Mark? Uh, well, no, because, well, actually, yes, because it does seem that the investment team uh, aren't entirely competent, but I'm hoping that Indeed. I'm quite wrong. Otherwise, it would be completely wrong because uh, we, you know, we need people who believe in investing in the right things in our country. And the Saudis have obviously, whatever the morality of it, which I don't want to discuss for obvious uh, reasons, but they've obviously chosen a very wise uh, outlet for investment with the, the world's greatest football team. Newcastle United. Um, a quick comment from Matthew before we move on to our final question. The government has had, there's a bit of sarcasm here, the government has had a small crisis in COVID to deal with. The next few years will show whether they can follow through with their policies, so that would be a kind of counter. And, uh, I suppose he has something there in that a lot of Western governments, competently or incompetently led, are struggling to pass uh, legislation. Um, Germany currently in coalition agreements, negotiations, uh, America government stuffed with talented and capable officials unable to pass big spending policies through Congress with some massive exceptions. Um, so, so I suppose COVID could complicate the picture, but I think there's a much bigger question to be had. And our final question, which prime ministers have grasped best? I mean, the answer is obviously not Boris Johnson. Let's maybe set Mr Johnson aside for this particular question. Which prime ministers have grasped best or been willing to grasp these fundamental issues? What is what is British identity? What is British foreign policy? How should we see ourselves as a country and as a, as a polity? A anyone want to go first on that one? Well, actually, I think Boris Johnson has grasped British mm. identity okay. fairly well. Um, I think he is... Well, By accident rather than design. <laughs> well, maybe but... so, but I think he remains one of the only politicians on the national stage, um, certainly in, in contemporary... Um, in, in, in the contemporary uh, moment. Um, that actually, I think, has a way to connect with the British public. I think all of our Prime Ministers have, for the most part, there have been exceptions, connected with some part of the British psyche. I think otherwise they broadly don't get elected. Mm. The Prime Ministers that never were um, are often found wanting in some, you know, often trivial way by the British public um, for whatever reason. I think it's not just about capturing the British mood, the British um, psyche, but also capturing the particular moment that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, even looking back ten years, we find ourselves in a very, very different political moment to the one we find ourselves in now, um, although that is the political era in which most of our current politicians are trained in, which I think we're seeing the outcomes of now. <laughs> Go back another... 20 years and you see another very, very different political landscape, another five perhaps into the 70s, you see a radically different political landscape again um, to the one that was playing out in the 80s. And I think that Prime Ministers are successful when they're able to, to grasp that um, particular that particular psyche. Some have been less successful, like Theresa May. Um, but I actually think Boris Johnson is probably one of the best examples of capturing what is an almost schizophrenic identity mm -hmm. on the part of the British public. Mark, you're in agreement there? Uh, well, kind of. I mean, if you look at people, there's a great myth that Mrs Thatcher chimed in with the public mood in 1979. It was just palpably false that the level of support 
uh, 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 general election shows that she actually chimed in with the mood of the contented minority who turned out because of our absurd electoral system that translated into uh, parliamentary majorities at three consecutive mm. elections. Uh, the person who came closest to, I guess, transcending the problems of Britain is Tony Blair. Uh, because, that, um, whereas Mrs Thatcher was divisive, Tony Blair wasn't perhaps widely respected, but he wasn't really hated up until the Iraq war, that even his opponents, certainly I, many of the Tory MPs I knew at the time, regarded him as the best Conservative Prime Minister Britain had ever had. And so, uh, and obviously there was a self-conscious attempt on his part to transcend party divisions with his kind of big tent initiative and all that kind of thing. So while the going was good for Tony Blair, uh, the People's Princess soundbite and all mm -hmm. that kind of thing, he was, he was the one who was able, uh, who had the potential of channeling this mixture of um, identities that we now have uh, with the devolution settlements as well. Even there you can see uh, a, a chance to bring together the different nationalities as well as different mm. identities. So, and Blair tossed it all away because like his predecessor, Margaret, predecessor but one, Margaret Thatcher, he... Uh, was insistent on running his own foreign policy, doing so in a way which asserted Britain's role on the world stage. So we go, we go right back to square one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, as long as you focus on on education, 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 then it's quite hard to to, to deviate from that. Um, uh, both of you, I appreciate very much your discussion and your, your thoughts today. And just to wind down the show, we normally have a more relaxed question. Um, are there any are there any film films or, or, or TV shows either of you have been watching recently that you could recommend to our dear listeners? There was a bit of hesitancy when I mentioned this question earlier. Um, Oliver, you are a, a young and, and, and fresh individual. Are you, are you in keeping with any, any current hit shows on Netflix or anything like that? Um, well, I've recently been enjoying uh, Arcane, um, which is from uh, Riot Games, which is interesting, and it's been, I think is so good that Riot Games should stop their side project of making computer games and uh, invest properly in, in full-time full time in uh, making TV series. Um, but on a completely different note, I also enjoyed Tick, Tick, Boom, which follows the life of the, um, the writer John Larson um, right. as he is you know, writing some of his first pieces. Mm. Um, of course, he um, was taken from the world very, very early in his life. Um, but, you know, he wrote uh, Rent, and which, 12 years in Broadway. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, interesting guy, but, interesting. And also Andrew Garfield, who I just enjoy watching. Yeah, I mean, that's the second time someone's mentioned Tick, Tick, Boom to me this week, which is, I, I just said quite a few times for a show I'd never heard of about last week. Um, so clearly it's, it's gaining a bit of traction. Um, Mark, any, 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 any binging tips to share with well, our listeners? Well, I've long gone beyond the age where I've got any cultural pretensions <laughs> at all. I make a rule of never listening to any music that was made beyond, uh, unless it's Radiohead, any music that was made be, um, more recently than the year 2000. However, I me mean, obviously being very elderly, I've got uh, um, some contact with young people's culture through children, whatever. And there is a programme, apparently, there's a called Peppa Pig. Um, and, and this apparently, not only is it a great sign of British innovation, the British spirit at work and all that kind of thing, 
Um, it also has spun off a kind of a theme park type thing, which I recommend that everyone. In fact, can I ask, have you been watching? Have you been? I, I hear the mass transit systems in Peppa Pig are very effective. Um, even the Daddy Pig stereotypes well, are a bit outdated. And not only is it very vastly entertaining, if you lose your place in any kind of public speaking engagement or whatever, you will leave the audience roaring with laughter and approval and respect if you then divert into talking about it because it is it's it's like a a, a national it is it's it's it's, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's what it's what made britain great if you if you look on our um, balance of payments exports last year it goes finance armaments pepper pig in that order of, of mm-hmm. biggest exports um so that, that, that maybe that's the identity of britain it's it's pepper pig based um uh, Bothy, thank you very much for coming on today i hope you, you've appreciated the discussion as much as i have um yeah, we've been Freedom of Speech going live. This has been New Speak. Thank you very much, Martin Oliver. You've been wonderful guest. Um, I've been Theo. The time is four to three. And we're going to play you out with, I think fittingly... Radiohead. <laughs> the Peppa Pig theme music. <laughs> There's t- I, I, I don't have the time to key that, I'm afraid, Mark. It's, it's Paradise by George Ezra to, to celebrate the country that we live in. Thank you both. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.